and welcome back to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library Geneva. I'm Natalie Alexander, and for our 10th episode today, we have a conversation with Ambassador Nazat Shamim Khan, the permanent representative of the Republic of Fiji to the United Nations in Geneva. Our director at the library, Francesco Pisano, joins her to discuss a range of things, including her story and how she joined the mission, and the importance of multilateralism for small island developing states, and vice versa. We also hear her thoughts and experiences on the role of women in leadership. She was the first woman High Court judge in Fiji, and also some of the critical issues concerning climate change and human rights in the Pacific, but also globally. It's great to hear her passion and knowledge on these issues. Hope you enjoy. Let's take a listen. Ambassador Khan, welcome on the next page of our podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a honor for us. Ambassador Khan, we are very pleased to have you here today. We're going to discuss many things under the banner Woman Ambassador and Pacific Islander, all of these three things and many more. And I would like to give our listeners a sense of you yourself, since they cannot see you, they can only hear you. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a diplomat and, and a permanent representative to the UN? Well, I'm currently the permanent representative of Fiji to the United Nations, and Fiji opened its mission in 2014 for the first time. In fact, we were one of the very few Pacific Island missions to open here. And uh, I was appointed by the Prime Minister, I believe, because um, I had previously had a very strong interest in human rights law as a private practitioner and also as a judge of the High Court. So I was a, a judge for about 10 years on the High Court of Fiji and uh, prior to that a prosecutor for 16 years. After I left the bench, I uh, opened a practice and I did um, a lot of training for judges and lawyers in the private sector on issues of governance and human rights. And I believe that because Geneva is seen very much as a human rights center of multilateralism, uh, that this is why my government uh, asked me to, to take this position. So this is uh, quite an unusual path for a diplomat. So you were professionally, you were not born a diplomat. No. You became one. What did inspire you to join your foreign affairs? I think it's because of the particular focus of Geneva, actually. I think that perhaps if I had been offered a position of diplomacy elsewhere in the world, perhaps a bilateral position, I may not have been as enthusiastic as I was at the prospect of coming to Geneva. First of all, for Fiji, Geneva was uncharted territory. We'd never been here before. So that already was a challenge. Secondly, I knew that uh, the focus would be the Human Rights Council, but also international trade, the WTO, and also, of course, the ILO and the WHO. But centrally, the Human Rights Council was to be uh, the focus of the mission, of the work of the mission. So this immediately interested me. In 2013, we had a new constitution with a very strong and robust Bill of Rights. And what really was work in progress in Fiji was how those rights were going to be translated on the ground in Fiji, through the courts, through civil society, through the Human Rights Commission. And I saw the Geneva mission as being central in that endeavor. I saw the role of the mission as helping my country 
to develop human rights on the ground with a very robust uh, Bill of Rights and um, the concept of having all of this shaped by international law and jurisprudence. So Geneva was the per perfect place to be at that particular time. Indeed, indeed. And Geneva has this particular focus on human rights, well-being and development. And in fact, one point that I wanted to discuss with you is the relatively higher importance of multilateral for small islands. This is basically what I've learned from your colleagues representing here small states. They've been telling me consistently small states need multilateralism for a number of reasons. So I would like to hear from you what, what it means for an island state like Fiji to be a member state of the UN. What kind of value do you attribute to multilateralism and the, and the protection of multilateralism? What is the important things that you as a country see in the UN? Well, if you look at um, global politics generally, small island developing states are not high on the pecking order of power politics. So we are not a large state, we are not an economic power, um, we are not centrally located, we're a very small island uh, state in the middle of the Pacific. All of these would ordinarily remove from us the possibility of any kind of influence in international politics. But because of multilateralism, because every country has an equal vote in the United Nations, because we have the possibility of working through regional groups, through the SIDS, through the PSIDS, which is the Pacific Small Island Developing States, that gives us more grease to the elbow. It gives us greater strength. It gives us more possibilities for collaboration. So I have seen Fijian diplomats who on their own perhaps would not be able to achieve anything but together with SIDS and PSIDS and with regional groups, the Asia-Pacific group also, I see Fijians making a great deal of impact on the way that international politics are shaped. And one example of that is the Paris Agreement. I saw that the Pacific voice was very loud. It was very much a voice of moral conscience in Paris. And it really did help to drive a positive um, resolution for Paris. So when I see that, I realize that, in fact, multilateralism is the only way in which a small island developing state in the middle of the Pacific can make an impact. And it's so important because we have to accept that the people of the Pacific have as much legitimacy in this way in which real politics develops as any other country, as any other people in the world. And in fact, because we are small, there is a greater imperative for our voices to be heard even louder because we are small. And so, you know, this is about equity. This is about justice. This is about egalitarianism in the politics of, of multilateralism. And this is why it works for a small country. Is, has it been your feeling during your years here as, as, um, as permanent representative that the values enshrined in multilateralism have less followers now or they're weaker or the same? What is your experience as a diplomat? Well, you know, the, the good thing about multilateralism is that it gives small countries a greater voice. But the downside of multilateralism is often decisions are reached by consensus. And consensus is very difficult to arrive at without a great deal of compromise. Now, although we say as a matter of human nature that compromise is a very good thing, there is a danger that you give a lot away in this compromise. So I have seen 
that on many resolutions where we've been part of the negotiations, that things that are very precious to us have had to be given away because we want a solution, we want a resolution. So with multilateralism, we're forced to take a step back and ask ourselves, what do we really want? Is it better to have a solution? And in achieving a solution, we're not really just looking at the substantive result. We're also looking at the process. The idea of sitting down in a room and negotiating with very large, very powerful countries, countries which might not have the same imperatives as we do, that in itself is an important process. So that's the long answer. But the short answer is the process is as important as substance when it comes to multilateralism. So what I see is small states and large states, powerful and rich states and developing countries and LDCs in the same room talking, talking about things which are important to them and being forced to listen to others. And to me, this is the strength of multilateralism. And I don't think that has been undermined. I know that there are moments when we felt very discouraged about multilateralism, when, you know, powerful countries don't believe in multilateralism or pull out from you know, existing processes, it makes us feel very disheartened. And we do think to ourselves, well, if the large countries are not going to respect the process, then what hope is there for the rest of us? But what I have seen is even though some large countries may either remove themselves from the process or remain in the process and, and be quite um, destructive of the process, the process still works. It still survives we still have a constructive conversation and we still have results in a calm and constructive manner. So I really believe that multilateralism, although it has really received some major blows in the recent past, has survived and promises to be even stronger because it survived. And it is really for us, the smaller countries, the countries for whom multilateralism works, it's for us to make sure that it survives. And in that process, and for that purpose, compromise is absolutely important. As a woman in diplomacy, how do you perceive your role? There are many young women who aspire to become leaders in international affairs. Um, when I teach at universities, I cannot buy, I cannot buy it, uh, notice how classes are becoming increasingly populated uh, with, uh, with girls. And actually, in any given class, girls are now the majority in political sciences, international affairs, and it's quite encouraging. And it's also, a, I think, a good news because women have a more natural inclination to take care of the global dimension of things. They are more um, inclined to consider more factors than just the typical, you know, power-driven factors in an equation. For example, to assert themselves through a decision-making process, leading to a decision that will resemble as much as possible to the idea that the, the negotiator had in, in his in his mind uh, before uh, sitting at the table. So, I would like to give our listeners this opportunity to hear from you. As, as a woman diplomat, what are your views or how can we inspire these listeners who are young women aspiring to leadership positions in international affairs? What is your experience? Well, first of all, I agree with you absolutely that there are far more women now at university. 
Um, I teach legal ethics in Fiji still. And when I look around the room at the new practitioners, I see the majority of the graduates are, are women and the same with the Foreign Service and so on. But what I'd like to know is why these women are not reaching senior positions. So when you look around at the Foreign Service everywhere in the world, you're not going to find a majority of women diplomats. In fact, even in Geneva, the women ambassadors are in the minority. So I believe the value of being a woman, setting aside diplomacy for a minute and just looking at our lived experiences, I believe that the value of being a woman is that most women in a workplace have experienced discrimination. And this discrimination can start from the moment they start to apply for jobs and then for promotion and so on. So then as she goes higher and higher up the ranks, if she's permitted to, if, if the system has not discriminated against her so she can't, then the question for a woman leader, and this is very important, is, is she going to forget all of the barriers that she experienced because she was a woman so that when she achieves leadership, she's not going to make any difference at all to the way the system works. So I'm now talking about institutionalized gender bias. Institutionalized gender bias means that the institution is not gender responsive. It doesn't consider the experiences of women. It doesn't consider the fact that women will go on maternity leave and may have to leave for some months. And when she comes back, she finds herself in a position of disadvantage or she may not be promoted because she's a woman. So when you've lived those experiences yourself and you reach a position of leadership, you are in a perfect position to change things because you've lived it. I'm not saying for a moment that men cannot change things. Of course they do. But in order for you to make really effective changes to create equal workplaces, you need to be gender responsive and gender competent. You need, you need to understand what are the experiences of women. And, you know, some of the most gender competent people I've met are men, actually, because they have listened. They've listened to whether it was their daughters or to their wives or to their colleagues, and they've heard the barriers that have existed for them. But very sadly, there are many women who do reach positions of leadership who either forget or think that changing the pattern is not going to work for them. And therefore, they perpetuate the inequalities of the past. So my very strong view is that if you're a woman leader and you don't change workplace practices, you don't make things more equitable and equal for everyone, not just for men and women, but persons with disabilities, persons who are from the LGBTIQ community, all of them are entitled to equality in the workplace. And that means understanding the way that their experiences are shaped and how they then shape their possibilities of advancement in the workplace. So I think really you've got to be an agent for change if you're a woman leader because you understand what it was like. I remember very clearly what it was like when I was 21 years old and I became a lawyer and I joined a, a prosecution office which had never had girls before and how difficult that was. So I was the first woman prosecutor in Fiji. And, you know, when, and then eventually I became the director of public prosecutions. And when I became director, the first thing I did was looked at all our recruitment policies and the way that the panels were put together to weed out any possibility of bias. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that you can weed out unconscious bias. Many of us are guided by unconscious bias. 
because we are social animals. We were brought up to have all of these preconceptions about women's behavior and men's behavior from the time we were born. But to have them institutionalized is a different issue. And in order to remove them, you've got to be aware of how the stereotypes can negatively impact workplace practices. So that's what I, I did. I removed it from the office of the DPP. It's, I think, a responsibility for a legal, uh, for a leader. But in, in, a, in a certain way, then, what you're saying sets women leader up for a higher challenge than men leaders because they have this additional mission to review and change the, the institution they're themselves leading. So this is, you know, a tall order. So what you're saying is basically this, that women have an additional responsibility when they exercise leadership. I think that all people who take on leadership become agents of change. I think most people who take on a position of leadership will look around the workplace and think, how can I do things better? How can I improve this? And so I think in the context of improving this, um, those who understand the experiences of women in the workplace are more likely to make changes which will incorporate equality in the workplace. You know, to say that we believe in equality is very politically correct, especially in Geneva. We all say we believe in equality. But then when you translate it into the way we do our work, that's a tall order. You're absolutely right. And often the people who are most qualified to make those changes are the ones who have experienced discrimination in the past. So again, I say, of course, men can make those changes and often do. But because women have actually experienced every barrier, every pothole, every way in which they haven't been able to succeed in the past, they then know where they, where they are in order to prevent young women in the workplace from experiencing the same. I think that's really what women want. They just want a level playing field and an opportunity to succeed. They don't want, I don't think they want special treatment. When you look back at, your, at the office you left in Fiji, it is your feeling that for young women who would access that career after you led that office, would they have an easier life reaching positions of um, seniority? I joined as the first woman. When I left as the director and went on to the, to the bench, we had 55% female. Now, I wasn't looking at recruits and thinking, oh, I must take more women. We were just looking at the system. How does it discriminate against women? How can we make this fairer? And when we created an egalitarian workplace, then automatically not only did women succeed in getting in, but they also succeeded and they were promoted. And uh, since I left, there has been one other woman director of public prosecutions. And I think more than 50% of the director of public prosecutions office now is still female. But, you know, then you go on to a new workplace. So I then joined the judiciary. And that, again, was I was the first woman judge. So we were back to square one, really, in, in trying to, to, to make a difference. And it's painful and it's difficult. But I think it makes a difference. It certainly does. This is very powerful. It's a powerful example. I hope that our audience will reflect on this capacity that women leaders have to change things for the better, not only for young women professionals, but for everyone, actually, because a, a non-discriminatory workplace is, is good for both men and women. It's good for the persons, the professionals who, who work there. I would like to stay in Fiji, but change the, um, 
the conversation onto climate change. This is a very important topic, and this year is actually the leading theme of all our outreach and intellectual events we hold here at the library is climate change. Now, this issue that is basically redefining world affairs these, these years is also an existential threat for the Pacific uh, Islands and for islands in general. But in the Pacific, I have happened to speak to a few people there that really have redefined this in their, in their minds as an existential threat. Tell us a bit, please, about your views and the views of Fiji regarding climate change and adaptation to climate change. Well, very recently in the Time magazine, we all saw the photograph of the Secretary General of the United Nations standing in the water in Fiji, and the water was up to his thigh. And he was standing on where the village used to be, because this was a village which had been relocated to higher ground. So that already, in a very poignant way, really shows you that it is an existential threat for the Pacific Islands. And what is happening in the Pacific is not only that the rising sea levels are actually taking over villages and forcing people to move, but even before the sea levels um, have completely taken over a village, the king tides, which come frequently and infest the agricultural land, make food security very difficult because it means you can't really grow where you have frequent salt water in the, in the soil uh, where the villagers have been planting their, um, their produce. So then actually the imperative to move becomes quite urgent when they can no longer live off the land because these are people who do live off the land. That is their land, and uh, in, certainly in Fiji, the majority of the land in Fiji is held in trust for the indigenous. So it is anticipated that in Fiji, which is a volcanic island actually, or a series of volcanic islands, that 63 villages will eventually, in the next few years, have to be relocated to higher ground. So that's already an enormous development journey for Fiji. But imagine those Pacific Island countries, which are not volcanic, they are coral atolls, and so some of them are only about two or three meters above sea level. How do they feel when they see the sea levels rising? When there is a threat of a tsunami, you know, when there's a threat of a tsunami in a country like the Marshall Islands, there is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to protect your people. You just have to wait to be washed away. So I think, you know, that shows you the urgency of the situation facing the Pacific, which has been caused through no fault of the Pacific. The Pacific Islands, I think, are not responsible for carbon footprints. So then the question is this, what is the answer? And the first, of course, is to persuade the world to reduce carbon emissions. And we know from the IPCC report that it is actually urgent, but it's not impossible if we all really put our shoulders to the wheel. So in fact, the imperative now is, is the world going to put its shoulders to the wheel in order to save countries, for instance, in the Pacific, but not just in the Pacific, there are many countries in the world which are possibly facing destruction, complete destruction. The second is, if the worst case scenario happens and an entire sovereign country disappears under the waves, what is the answer in international law and policy? There is no answer. There is nothing in the law of the sea, nothing in the refugee convention, which deals with the situation of the exodus of an entire population. So as you know, Fiji has offered to take in 
the people of several Pacific Island countries. And that's an enormous offer for a country which is itself developing and itself having to displace some of its people. But what are the rules? What are the, what are going, what are the rules of engagement when entire populations come to Fiji? And this is really an important issue for migration also. On the one hand, they will come and they will become Fijian citizens with all the rights which are available to citizens under the constitution. But on the other hand, if you listen to the Pacific Islanders, their most poignant cry is that they will lose their culture. Because this is not just about the movement of part of a population from Africa to Europe, where the culture continues to thrive in the home country. This is actually the destruction of the home country and the possibility of the loss of the entire very proud culture and identity of those people. So if the people of Tuvalu or Kiribati come to Fiji one day, what can we say to them about the preservation of their culture, about their cultural autonomy, about their right to practice their customs that they don't feel that all is lost? And that is the greatest fear in the minds of the Pacific Islanders, that if they lose their land, they will lose their culture, their language, the song, and the richness that really exists in the Pacific. And there is no answer for that in Fiji. Because if you start to say to people, we'll put you in one reservation, we'll put you in one area, we'll make sure that you practice your culture, the fear, of course, the Fijians would have is that by not integrating, we are creating a social problem for ourselves. It is a migration problem. So we need to now in the Pacific start to have this conversation about what happens when, which God forbid, when and if it does happen. The third issue in relation to the Pacific is this. Because we're a small island developing state, we need to really have a strong voice in multilateral conversations on this issue. And here we find that although, as I mentioned, the Paris Agreement, we did have a strong voice, and in climate negotiations, we do tend to have a strong voice, the voice in relation to the impact of climate on our islands is not heard in many other UN agencies. So one of our hopes was to ensure that climate change is discussed in the Human Rights Council, in the World Health Assembly, in the ILC, in the WTO, everywhere. Because to us, climate change is everything about our development. It's our existence. And so really a third issue, which I think is a challenge to us, is the lack of coherence on climate change conversations throughout all of the international agencies in the world. There's, there's a danger that we talk about climate change in silos. So we talk about it in Bonn, and we talk about it in New York, but we not, may not talk about it here in, in Geneva or in Bangkok. And so therefore, there is a need for the Pacific to keep this very, very strong and very, very compelling voice in all of these UN agencies and to insist on coherence. When I was speaking to the to the diplomat and the lawyer you are, there are clearly interconnections between climate change and let's call them human rights, but also legitimate expectations uh, by a population that lives three meters above sea level, for example. Now, one thing that I've learned by traveling to the Pacific, and I was uh, very well received in your country several the several times I, I went there, and I was fascinated by all the marvelous things that are in these islands and in these peoples in these islands. 
And I was also fascinated by another thing that is so difficult for someone who lives there to understand the end of the, the rest of the world, but also to have a sense and a, a certainty that he or she will be understood by the rest of the world. And one of the most vivid memories I have is uh, of an official in Fiji telling me the fact that you traveled here to have this discussion proves to me more than anything else that you are interested in discussing because you took all the time to travel. Whereas normally we, we islanders have to cross half of the world to go to London, Paris, uh, New York, or Geneva to have these discussions. So that struck me as an imbalance in the way the Pacific relates to the world and the world relates to the Pacific. Now, when we see all this in the context of climate change, that feeling I have turns into the fear that what climate change really represents for you is much closer to what the problem is, in fact, than the representation of the problem being done by, let's say, Western European politicians, for example, who seem to talk about climate change as one of the things we would need to take care of uh, uh, some given time. So this sense of urgency that I find in the, in the discourse on climate change in the Pacific seem to be lost to the, the, the European or, or the, the Western countries. How do you deal with this as, as a diplomat? And how would you explain to the listeners the connection between international law, law, human rights, and climate change? You know, one of the most divisive and controversial subjects in the context of climate negotiations has been human rights and climate change. But when you deconstruct what this means, it actually means talking to people, listening to people. And when you draft climate policy, you do it understanding what people want, having consulted them. And by people, I mean also women and children and persons with disabilities. This is what I mean by human rights, a human rights approach to climate change. But unfortunately, some countries in the world think that when you're talking about human rights in the context of climate change, you're thinking about another source of accountability. I don't see this like this. I consider that because our past efforts have pretty, uh, I would say, dramatically failed in trying to stop this tide of climate change, that we've got to really go back to the drawing board. We've got to look at what we've done wrong in the past. And I think what we've done is we've imposed climate policy from the top to the people. And the people haven't really understood what's going on, why they're paying more taxes, why plastic bags have been banned, why they can't fish for particular types of fish, or they can't go on the coral reef anymore. So in my opinion, this business about translating what happens in Fiji and Samoa and Tuvalu to Geneva and vice versa, and also from New York to, to Fiji and vice versa, is exactly the role of the Geneva mission or the UK mission. And this translation means that people should understand what we do here. The other really important thing about this discussion about human rights is that it has a transformative ability. So as you know, because you've been to Fiji and you know the Pacific, there are many of our communities where you never see the women. If you're going to have an official conversation with a community, the women may only come out to serve the tea. But that's changing. 
And I think climate change is forcing a change upon us because when you're saying we will consult the people, well, we mean all the people. And this democratization of climate policy has really modified cultural practices and made it more egalitarian at community level, which is very important. So this is the other level of human rights and climate change. The way in which it's forced changes on the ground in a country and forced us to hear voices, which we haven't heard before. And these are very wise voices. These are the women who collect the water, so they know what's happening to water levels. These are the women who fish, so they know that the fish are dying. So if you don't hear their voices, then we're never going to change the way we deal with climate change. The other really important part of this conversation is slightly painful for everyone because it's the loss and damage conversation. In other words, if everything's falling apart, who's going to pay? And it's another very difficult conversation in climate negotiations. People really don't want to talk about it. And in fact, there were meetings on loss and damage uh, when I was um, the chief negotiator at COP23, where some developed countries didn't even come to the discussions. They were so concerned about the price tag to the loss and damage conversation. But to me, there are so many facets to the loss and damage conversation. If we are losing islands, and we are losing villages, the answer is not necessarily paying for a seawall. There is so much more a community can do to save its island, or the worst case scenario if it has to move, to decide how it's going to move, whom it's going to talk to, what are the partnerships, how civil society is going to help, and how to ensure that when they move, they move to a place where all the rights in the Bill of Rights, including the right to adequate housing, water and sanitation, all of those are satisfied. This, to me, is the crux of the loss and damage conversation. Who will pay is almost incidental. So I think people are mistaken and misled when they think that the only facet to discussing what's going to happen to the Pacific and the people of the Pacific is about money. But in addition, don't you think that uh, what doesn't get discussed in the, in the damage and loss compensation uh, compartment will reappear when we discuss financing uh, sustainable development in Agenda 2030? Of course, it will. And in fact, I don't think you can separate uh, climate policy from the SDGs. In fact, in a country like Fiji, you simply can't develop unless you factor in the fact that we're having more frequent cyclones, that we're going to evacuate people every time we have a cyclone, that there may be disruption to, to education because the evacuation centers are schools or health centers, so then there's a disruption to health services, that there's going to be an increase on, on sexual and gender-based violence because you're disrupting access to the courts and the police stations. We have to think of these things. So, in fact, climate change... And the consequences of climate change, which is more frequent disasters, have an immediate impact on the way that we're going to deliver on the SDGs. To us, there is no difference in this journey. And as far as the funding is concerned, I think, you know, the world needs to realize that there is really no clear-cut division between one form of development journey and the other. You know, if you're trying to be ready and build resilience for another cyclone, in fact, it has every relevance to the SDGs. But unfortunately, uh, funding mechanisms don't always recognize that there is this very um, strong interrelation. I would call it a symbiotic relationship. And I think, but I think slowly some countries are, some developed countries' donors are realizing that it's very difficult to separate. And so increasingly we're saying, seeing a far more constructive conversation on this front. 
In the late 90s, I was working with Fijian counterparts in the area of um, natural disasters prevention. And I remember during my trips there that um, I may be mistaken, but uh, my, my impression was that Fiji was almost a miniature laboratory for the integrated dimension of natural disasters, vulnerability to natural risk, etc., and all the rest of the social construct, society, the, the economic sectors, agriculture, fisheries, etc. There, all these links that seem implicit in other larger countries were extremely clear and very explicit. Does it give you, as Fiji, an advantage? Is there anything that Fiji can teach other countries because of this concrete experiencing of interrelationship between risk, vulnerabilities, and the economy and society? I think, you know, uh, because we're a small country, the same officials tend to be in, a multiple, in multiple roles. And so therefore, this interrelation and integration is almost inevitable because we're forced to think in different ways, which particularly in the context of building resilience, um, affects several ministries and departments. So I think our size helps to have a more integrated uh, approach. But also, I think the imperatives of having to do something. For instance, we're the first Pacific Island country to have a relocation policy. So we have a relocation policy which is based on the United Nations guidelines on dis internal displacement. And, you know, we were able to consult very closely with UN agencies based in Fiji and here in Geneva before the relocation guidelines were launched. So I think another thing that Fiji believes in is um, working in a very constructive way with relevant UN agencies. There is UNDP based in Fiji, and we have the OHCHR office also in Fiji. Uh, we have UN Women based in Fiji. It is easier to consult with UN agencies which really promote an integrated approach. I think also our constitution, which insists on a baseline of respect for human rights in relation to everything, and so therefore, because it is national policy to always act in accordance with the constitution, that that also promotes an integrated approach. I think those three factors. Before we wrap up the conversation, there is one thing that I asked to our guests. You are here in the library, and we're very, very honored by your presence. And I would like to ask you, what is a library for you? Well, you know, from the age of five, when I first learned to read, and English was not my first language, as you can imagine, my father used to take us to the Suva City Library every Saturday morning, and he would just leave us there. It was our home for about six hours. And so we were not going to the library just to take out a book and take it home. We sat behind the shelves, cross-legged, uh, four of us, the four, four girls, and we would read and read. So reading became a passion from a very early age. And I do remember that I, when I was on hospital for a few days to get my tonsils out and they switched the lights off, I would read under the bedclothes, which of course ruined my eyes. But um, I was uh, always a passionate reader and I still am. And I see the library not just as a place to find books. I see the library as a center for peace, for a moment where you can catch yourself and your breath and you can just 
there's a particular smell of libraries, which I like very much. And you can just feel this around you. The other thing is, I know everybody now is on the computer and on phones and on Kindle, but there's nothing like opening a book and feeling the pages under your, between your fingers. And uh, this is something really wonderful about the whole world of libraries. Ambassador Khan, permanent representative of Fiji to the UN office in Geneva, thank you for being with us on our podcast, The Next Page. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure.